Turn with me again this morning to Mark, Mark chapter 2 today. Mark chapter 2, and read the first 13 verses here. Remind you, this is God's holy, infallible word. Give careful attention as it's read this morning. Then when he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof from him, uh, removed, removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes were sitting there and were reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blasphemed. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware of his, in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk? But so you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. And he went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. Well, the basic point that I want to put before you this morning is that you can't know Jesus rightly as your Savior unless you know your sin. You know what you've been rescued from. Uh, you know how terrible and desperate your situation was apart from Him. That's the only way you can know Him rightly. I, I read recently of a woman who uh, didn't find out that she was adopted until she was 50-some years old. Uh, her parents just hadn't told her, and she was very sad about this. Not that she was adopted, she was sad that she never knew that. She was missing this huge piece of, of a reason for gratitude to God, gratitude to her parents. She was missing understanding of, of her identity as one who was rescued in some way from who knows what, maybe a broken or abusive home or maybe even abortion. She was missing full appreciation of, of the sacrifice and love of her parents, who, who for whatever reason didn't tell her that she was adopted. Well, this passage here, in this passage, Jesus points to the fact that you can only know and fully appreciate Him as Savior to the degree that you know and appreciate how uh, offensive your sin is, how uh, fundamental uh, a problem it is, how desperate your need is for His mercy. That's how we can understand fully. Well, I want to begin uh, this morning just by setting this scene for this new um, account here that we come to this morning, and, and note two things about this the setting here: uh, the house that Jesus is in and the crowd. Okay. Um, verse 1, we read that word got out that Jesus was 
uh, again at home in Capernaum and talked a couple weeks ago about the fact that Jesus apparently lived here in Capernaum. This was his home for much of his ministry. Uh, maybe he lived with Peter. Maybe he had his own house. Uh, we don't know. Um, but the, the house will come into play. If this was a typical Palestinian house, it would have one uh, floor, one, one main room, uh, a one-story house. There, there were some houses in ancient Palestine that had two stories. You recall Jesus shared the Last Supper in the upper room. Some had two stories in, in cities. But um, a typical home had one floor. And outside, though, there would be stairs on the outside of the house up to the roof. And the roof was made by just putting beams across the walls of the, the first floor and then laying sticks across those and then laying thatch on that and then putting mud in the thatch and, and packing it down. It would dry out. And the roof served as something of a deck uh, in, in the ancient world um, and, and many places um, still today. Um, it was a place to go to, to eat at times or maybe just to get away or to pray, um, a place to get some light. Um, the, the main room in the house uh, didn't have much natural light, of course, no artificial light, so it was a place to hang out in the sunshine, even drying laundry and other things um, is what ancient um, people in Palestine would do. So there's the house and then the crowds. The other part of the setting I want to put before you, uh, Mark mentions in, in verse 2, uh, many people were gathered here at Jesus' house, or wherever he was staying. Um, and then in verse 4, he mentions the crowd. And I put the crowd before you as a significant theme in the Gospel of Mark. Mark mentions the crowd or the crowds around Jesus almost 50 times uh, in this the, the easily shortest Gospel. Uh, in the New Testament, almost 50 times. And the crowds are always uh, attracted to Jesus in some way. They're always fascinated by Jesus, listening. But Mark never once, in those almost 50 mentions of the crowd, never once describes the crowd as uh, believing or coming in repentance uh, or faith or really having understanding. Um, and after, in chapter 8, uh, we have Peter's confession uh, that you are the, the, the Christ. And immediately after that, Jesus begins to, to talk about his suffering and say, this is, the, this is what the Christ is. I, I came to suffer and die. And after that point, the crowds are fewer and fewer and begin diminishing. Um, until the end, what are the crowds around Jesus doing? They're, they're chanting that he be crucified. Right? So the crowds are, are fickle. Um, one commentator, Edwards, summarizes it this way. Crowds are not a measure of success in Mark. Uh, they're not a measure of success. They're, and he goes on, enthusiasm for Jesus and even proximity to him are not the same as faith. Now, Jesus will, um, as in this passage here, uh, occasionally notice someone's faith or, or call out someone's faith and, and commend it. But it's always in, in contrast with the crowds who are around. It's when, when he points out someone and says, I haven't seen faith like this, it's, it's, it's the exception to all the crowds that are around him. Uh, never once are the crowds described in that way. And that should just be a reminder for our day, for our churches as well, that uh, crowds are not a measure of success, right? Faithfulness to Jesus um, and not the size of a crowd or the popularity of a ministry or the excitement of a congregation necessarily. Uh, all of those things could come from genuine faith, right? But none of them by themselves 
are a measure of, of the success of the kingdom. And so Jesus is speaking to the crowds again. He's, he says he's speaking the word to them. He's found uh, preaching, doing his greatest uh, priority here. Well, let's consider, secondly, then, this, this paralytic that's brought to Jesus. And what, what stands out here in bringing the paralytic is the extraordinary effort and determination um, of his friends to bring him to Jesus. These men of, of faith, Jesus will recognize their genuine faith, uh, couldn't get through because of the crowd. There's the crowd, again, being sort of in the way of the genuine ministry and faith that's going to take place. So they can't get through to Jesus, so they go up to the roof, likely up, up an outside staircase, as I said. And then they don't lower him through a skylight or through a trap door or something like that. It was, it was a solid roof. Mark is clear in verse 4. They dug an opening. They would have had to, to dig out the roof. Um, a, a, a hole big enough to fit a, a grown man and the, the cot that he's laying on down. So it literally destroyed Jesus' house. They destroyed his roof to get this man in. And you can imagine, as they dug out all that mud and broke through the sticks and dug out all the carefully laid thatch that uh, they certainly dropped dirt all over the people who were in the house uh, below, right? Probably annoyed them uh, as well, making all this effort, all, of it, all to get this man to Jesus. On verse 5, Jesus recognizes faith in their determination, some kind of genuine Faith, true, humble, determined faith. It reminds us in the last passage of the leper, right? And his determination to get to Jesus. He knew he was breaking the law. He was breaking social custom. Uh, he was. He might have faced uh, hatred and even punishment for what he was doing, but he was determined to get to Jesus, whatever the cost. And then here's where Jesus, in response, does something, as he often does, something surprising. Uh, to those around. This man's been brought to Jesus by this great effort, and he has a very obvious problem, right? He's lying in a cot. The man can't walk. Right? This is obviously his, his biggest problem. This is his need. And what's Jesus' response? He says, your sins are forgiven. You can imagine one response of people around. We're, we're told of another response, verse 6 and 7, the scribes, some of the Jewish leaders are there, and they are thinking, oh, he's blaspheming. Right? Who, who can forgive sins but God alone? And the scribes are correct in one aspect. Right? Only God can forgive sins. So they're right to think either Jesus is a crazy blasphemer and a liar, or he has the authority of God to forgive sins somehow. We can also imagine the response of others. Imagine the surprise, maybe disappointment of others who saw this man who's obviously crippled, can't walk, brought to Jesus, and Jesus' response is, your sins are forgiven. But Jesus is, in, in saying that, responding that way, is pointing the paralytic, is pointing the crowds, is pointing us who are reading this to a deeper, more fundamental need, his need for his sins to be forgiven. Right? That, is, that is his, that is your, that is my biggest, most fundamental problem, that we are sinners before God. We face the wrath of God for sin uh, in ourselves, apart from God's grace. That is our greatest need. Uh, John 3.36, Jesus said, Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. 
Or Paul in Romans 1 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. All of it. Every bit of it. The greatest need of humans is to escape the wrath of God for sin, to be reconciled to God. That's, that's the greatest benefit of Christianity. Right? There are many benefits of, of God's grace and many benefits of, of Christianity, but the greatest benefit, the one foundational to all of them, is the gospel of Jesus Christ that proclaims forgiveness of sin, reconciliation to God, in, instead of knowing his wrath. And so, so solving the problem of sin is not... It's not, well, God loves you and you should try to live by his rules because it'll work, it'll work better for you. You'll be a better person. No, you, you face the just wrath of God for your sins forever unless you're reconciled to him. And Jesus' response uh, and the timing of it illustrates that, that fact powerfully, that that is the most basic need that everyone has. It's as if he was saying to us who are reading this, even if you are paralyzed from the neck down, as, as difficult and terrible as that would be, that would not be your greatest need. That wouldn't be your biggest problem. Now, people turn to God for all sorts of felt needs, right? For relationships, problems in relationships, for healing, for grief, many other things, and rightly so, right? God is the creator, sustainer, provider. Any good that we, we know and receive is from his grace and his sovereign will. But many people fail to comfort to him for the one thing most needed, right? most foundational, most basic, the, the problem of sin. That's not to say that God doesn't care about these other needs and problems and, and desires and so on. But those are ultimately meaningless without forgiveness of sin, without reconciliation to God. Right? Jesus goes on to heal the paralytic here, and that's wonderful. His life is changed He's able to walk, but then he dies again, right? A few years later, as everyone does. What, what good would it be ultimately if he wasn't reconciled to his God, to, to, to whom he's going to face uh, at, at his death? Jesus gave him eternal life, an eternal gift. Again, to know Jesus as Savior, you have to know and to agree with his diagnosis of, of what you need what your greatest problem is. You can't treat sin lightly and suppose that you know Jesus. Jesus never treated sin lightly or casually. And here, even in saying your sins are forgiven, saying that, he wasn't treating sin lightly as if he can just wave his hand or as sometimes people say, do you have, do you have guilt feelings? Well, you know, don't be so hard on yourself. It's okay. I forgive you. Let it go. Don't worry about it. Just try to be better. That's, that's not what Jesus is, is simply saying. He never treated sin lightly. In John 8, Jesus said, everyone who commits a sin is slavery, is slave to sin. Matthew 5.29, maybe most shockingly, Jesus says, your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and, and throw it away. Jesus treated sin very seriously. He never treated it lightly. He speaks constantly of the warning of God's just judgment. And when he offers forgiveness here, when he says your sins are forgiven, it's not because he's just having a good day or he's 
feeling generous or he's just a kind guy. He's offering forgiveness on the basis of his own death, of his own gruesome death. When he was on the cross, forsaken by the Father, he faced the wrath of God for, for the sins of those who believe in him. He was counted and hated as, as a worthless criminal on your behalf, on my behalf. Again, in spite of all that, many people don't want to hear about their sin problem. And, and we, can all, um, we can all acknowledge that it is uncomfortable right, to, to be confronted with our sin, to, to recognize it. But because of that, many people, even churches, ignore or at least downplay the topic of sin. It's seen as, as negative, as depressing, even uh, old-fashioned. I, I, I think I shared when I preached here last summer that uh, there was a billboard in Orlando for a couple of years that just said, God is not angry. That's all it said with the name of the church. I don't remember what it was underneath. God is not angry. And the next billboard might as well say, so there's no need for the gospel. Right? That's not Jesus' message. Right? For those who don't know him, Jesus came and suffered because God is angry at sin, justly opposed to injustice and, and evil, which, which sin is. But he offers full, unconditional, free pardon and acceptance in Jesus for those who repent of their sin and, and turn from it and give their lives to Christ. All right, there are ministries like Joel Osteen's, right? uh, tens of thousands of members in the church, uh, millions of readers of his books or, or viewers of his shows. Uh, he refuses to talk about sin at all. Uh, that is, he refuses to tell people why they need a Savior. Right, we saw uh, arrogant resistance to this, this fact that, that sin is our most basic problem, that we should be prompted always in, to come to the Lord in humility and, and ask for his grace. We saw arrogant resistance to that on full display at the inauguration a couple of weeks ago, the inaugural address. It was stated, this is a great nation, we are a good people, and we will never fail. Pretty confident statement. We are all good, and we will never fail. Even in the prayer at the end, it spoke of all of us discovering our goodness together. All right, well, the guarantee of the scriptures is if we proclaim our goodness, if you proclaim your goodness rather than acknowledge your, your sin and helplessness, uh, you will, well, you won't know your need for a Savior, and you will fail with certainty. Acknowledging what Jesus identifies as the most fundamental problem and need is, is crucial. It's indispensable to recognizing the salvation that you need. It's indispensable to knowing what kind of Savior Jesus is. Um, imagine going to the doctor for a minor health issue and you, along with that, you get some routine blood work and discover you have something far worse, something life-threatening going on in you. Well, the attitude of many, even who profess to know Christ towards sin, is equivalent to saying, Doctor, I don't want to hear about that. Just, just make my ankle feel better. Make my rash go away. Right, Pastor, I don't want to hear about sin. 
Just fix my spouse or help me to feel good or give me five tips to successful parenting. We don't realize sin is our biggest problem. We want all kinds of other fixes. We don't realize the problem with our marriage is not incompatibility, it's selfishness. Sin. This passage confronts you again with the question, so who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? He did not come to earth to make you feel better or comfortable or change your circumstances or just give you a boost. Simply, he came to forgive your sins, to reconcile you to God. As guilty and rebellious sinners to God. Is is that what your faith is? Is that why you're here this morning? What you've come to hear? uh, Confirmation and the comfort of again. So let's turn thirdly and consider Jesus' healing of this man and the response to that. Jesus responds to the the scribes and their um, thinking about him in verse 9 saying, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your pallet and walk? Which is easier? Jesus' point is that it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Right? Anyone can just say that. It's not really verifiable, outwardly, immediately verifiable. Right? And so Jesus goes on, verse 10, So that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He's going to do the physically verifiably impossible to prove his authority to do the, the invisible healing right? and forgiving of the heart, which is, is equally impossible for anyone to do. Right? Both are equally impossible, and, and they're really not two separate things, uh, ultimately. Right? Physical healing and, and redemption and, and spiritual reconciliation with God. Right? All, all the physical suffering and, and, and all kinds of misery that we experience are, are a consequence of sin. Right? Not, a, not to say of specific sins necessarily, but of sin in a, in a fallen world. And so Jesus goes on and heals this paralytic right before them. But, but again, this was done secondarily. It, it's done to confirm his authority to forgive sins, to give eternal life, to reconcile people to God. Well, of course, the response of the crowd is amazement. Verse 12, they were all amazed, saying, we have never seen anything like this. And it would be mind-blowing, right, to see... Someone who is paralyzed one minute, hop up and walk out the door the next minute. They're astonished, as, as they should be. But understand, there were two miracles that Jesus did here. The crowd reacted to the second one, but the first one was, was more astonishing, more mind-blowing, that God would forgive sinners, that God would justify the, the guilty. You ought to be far more amazed that God would forgive your sins right? than anything else that you have to be amazed at, rightly, or thankful for that God has done for you. Whatever you have to be thankful for, family or wealth or health or your marriage or God working things to get that job or whatever it is, you ought to be far more amazed and grateful for justification or forgiveness. It's really a vastly greater provision and gift than anything else that you could experience or hope for or imagine. 
ought to be genuinely astonished. But being genuinely astonished at the grace of God for you requires it requires conviction of just how bad sin is, of what, what you've been rescued from. If sin is not that big a problem, if it's, if it's not that bad, if you're not that offensive to God, then God's forgiveness is not all that amazing. Right? That, that's why preaching on and studying and reflecting on, on sin, as, as difficult and uncomfortable as that is, is so crucial. And that, that's why people or even churches that ignore or diminish sin are, are doing nothing less than belittling God, right? diminishing the mercy and love of God. If your sin is not as bad as the Bible says, then God's love is not so incredible. It's not so great, not so sacrificial, not so valuable. It's nice, maybe, in some way. I think the greatest barrier to being literally amazed at the grace of God is that we don't recognize how bad sin is. And maybe the main reason for that is that it's normal to us. Right? It's, it's normal to a great degree to all of us. It's part of our everyday lives. It's part of our own thinking. It's part of our interaction with others day to day. It, it's what we're used to. I, I heard this illustrated well Imagine a man uh, working in a sewer, right? This is his job. He works with other people in a sewer every day. And, of course, he's aware that he and his coworkers are dirty and smelly, but he's used to it, doesn't notice it so much, doesn't notice the smells anymore. Sure, one person might have you know, more filth on them than, than another person, but everyone looks generally the same. It's just the way it is in the world of working in a sewer. Right, but pluck one of those guys out and put him in a hospital, right, even in a sterile operating room. And it's, it's immediately vastly more apparent how filthy he is. Right? He'd go from maybe somewhat consciously and uncomfortably, but, but uh, normally dirty to shockingly offensive in a hospital. That's like our sin in the presence of a holy God who created this world to be holy and perfect and in love and justice and for truth to prevail absolutely with no sadness and pain and so on. One sin, one sin, the presence of that God and, and that, the purpose of that creation is a devastating incursion and infection. Right, of that perfect creation, and, and more of that added an offense against the holy God. But it, one sin infects and grows and kills and flies in the face of who God is, what he's provided, his goodness, his holiness. It's like just a, even a, a single pathogen in a, in a sterile operating room. Right, can be, can, can be enough to mess up the surgery, even, even kill the patient. How much more a, a man covered in, in filth. We have to understand the sinfulness of sin. Another way the Bible points to the sinfulness of sin is it teaches that even one sin makes us guilty of breaking the whole law. It makes us liable to God's just punishment. And many people, maybe most of us, have struggled with that fact to see the offense of just one, maybe seemingly small, sin. How, how can it be that great of an offense? 
Well, imagine you and I get in an argument and gets a little bit heated and before we cool down and go our ways, you spit in my face. Right? That would be unkind and upsetting, but wouldn't necessarily mean anything else. I, I don't have the authority or wouldn't bother to prosecute you or something like that. Just be a offensive thing between us. But imagine the difference between that and if you had opportunity but without good reason to spit in the face of the Queen of England, say. Or, or a monarch, especially if you go back a couple hundred years. Right? It's an entirely different thing. Uh, because of the, the office and the glory of the office that's, that's held. And even, even if there's less uh, glory and pomp, you know, in, in the highest office in our land, that, you know, the President of the United States, if you were to spit in his face even, though, you'd likely be tackled and prosecuted, right? Maybe go to jail. The offense of a wrong is proportionate to the office and the glory of the office offended. And so our sin is an infinite offense of God's infinite glory. Again, the point is, if, if you don't appreciate this, this, uh, the sinfulness of your own sin, you won't appreciate the shock of God's willingness to forgive, of His compassion to embrace sinners as His own children. If you diminish sin, you won't be able to see how costly and valuable and trustworthy and beautiful is the love of God. And that's why Jesus emphasizes that here, prioritizes it in the face of, of an obvious physical need with this paralytic. Your sins are forgiven. If you go to the doctor with some pain and he finds, say, a, an ingrown nail and he trims it and sends you on your way, you know, you'll be thankful, you'll be grateful, but not powerfully so. If the doctor finds that your pain, though, is from cancer and gives you treatment, saves your life, you will be likely powerfully, life-changingly grateful. Well, I think too many people are, say, going to church to hear how they can fix their ingrown nails or their colds or their rashes and ignoring or maybe not even listening for the grace of God that cures the cancer of sin and gives life with God. Well, may that be what we are about here, that we would know our sin, know uh, how great our Savior is in our salvation. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you again this week for your word. We thank you um, that you're so gracious to uh, show us our sin, Lord, to uh, confront us with it and the guilt and the offense of it, that we would know uh, how gracious and unconditional and compassionate uh, is your offer of reconciliation and peace. And Lord, far beyond just forgiveness or a clean slate, you have embraced us as your children uh, and given us great blessings and promises. So we pray that you would help us to see our sin and better know our Savior and our salvation. And we pray this in his name. Amen.